G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. Good everyone. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast. This is the Round 8 Review Edition after an action-packed weekend of football. Some big statements made, some big questions being asked now after, uh, well, Geelong's terrific win over the reigning champs, the Tigers, back on Friday evening. Melbourne undefeated at the top of the ladder, their best opening to a season since 1965. Nearly longer ago than Finey and I have both been on this planet. And the Western Bulldogs, a really strong response when challenged in one of the last games of a terrific weekend of footy. As I say, a very good evening to the man I just mentioned, my footyology co-host, Mark Fine. What did you make of it all, Finey? Well, first of all, this is Melbourne's best start since I was in the last trimester of my my own pregnancy. You know, that's pretty interesting. Um, uh, you know what? If the AFL could organise this theme round every year, the high mark round of the year, I reckon it'd be a better selling point than some of the ones that they try and flog us because this was spectacular from game one, Shy Bolton, right through to the last game. Jay Danaher, there were some beauties, weren't there? There were a couple off the top of my head. Harry Himmelberg took a, a good one for the Giants. Brody Majacek took a, a classic sort of big mark with the sit on the back for the Pies uh, in the Saturday Twilight game. Any I've missed there? Yeah. Um, I, I, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you one that would have almost trumped them all. How, all, how about Bobby Hill went for a crazy huge fly in the goal square and he should have taken it. That was a magnificent sit. Alir Alir took a fantastic mark. Oh, I've got another one. I've got another one. Alex Keith of the Bulldogs took a ripper today on the uh, outer wing or what do we call it? The rollway side wing. Um, So you're right. It was a a spectacular weekend of high marking. Some absolute rippers being taken. I'll tell you one thing that also gets high marks, Finey. That is the best hamburger in town. Can you tell me about it? I can tell you that's the best throw you've done to the Andrews Hamburgers ad in three and a half years of great sponsorship. Beautifully done, Rowan. Thank you. High marks indeed. Top marks for this big grab. And it's a big bite as well. Andrews Hamburgers, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. It's top of the pack and it's two bites. No. Three or four bites at the cherry for this one. And what a cherry it is. The best burgers in town, Andrews. Oh, I've, I've got to throw in a bit of Uncle Doug Elliott there. Andrews hamburgers for the high and mighty. The high and the hungry. Hey, does that mean you need to have a joint before you eat one? No, it doesn't. But it means that uh, when I sit back with one, I want to be sitting in a beautifully appropriated and refurbished home. Where should I go? You should hightail it to West Point Properties. Robert, you are talking about heaven on a stick. 
sitting back in a West Point property luxury build with the eye of detail by master builder Nick Bartels eating an Andrews hamburgers and watching a game of football where your team is the one on the receiving end of a good decision that gets them the four points. It's fanciful for you as a Bomber supporter, Rowan, but you can only dream, can't you? Oh, that's very funny. And uh, ditto the highest and mightiest stats in the sporting business. You can find at Footyology's official partner, Stats Insider, the best sports data analysts on the planet. They cover more than 15 sports globally. They sample an event more than 10,000 times to find the most likely outcomes to help you in your tipping and your punting endeavours. And you can also read some of the finest in independent sporting journalism on that side. In fact, I'm going to be pinning a column for them tomorrow as we speak. No idea what it's going to be about, but I can tell you it's going to be bloody good. So check it out at statsinsider.com.au. All right, there's our intro done. There's our plugs done, all in suitably professional style. Now let's drag it down a peg or two. No, just kidding. Let's get into some very meaty and juicy analysis of the matches in round eight. On Footyology, wrap around. So round eight kicked off on Friday evening at the MCG with a big grand final rematch. And yet again, the narrative played out with one side making the early running and the other side gradually overpowering them and rolling over the top. Here, though, was the big sting in the tail. The roles were reversed. Yes, it was Geelong finally ending that runabouts against the Tigers. They'd lost six of the previous seven, but certainly came up trumps this time with a big 63-point win. The final scores, Geelong, 19-12, 126, defeating the Tigers, 9-9-63. The goal kickers, well... A massive 15 goals kicked by three Geelong players. Six to Jeremy Cameron, five to Gary Rowan, four to Tom Hawkins, two to Isaac Smith, singles to Higgins and Close. For the Tigers, three each to Arts and Bolton, singles to Lynch, Rioli, Rewalt. Well, bit of a shock finding. Not so much that the Cats won, but the manner of that victory. It was absolutely overwhelming in the finish and the Tigers looking a little shell-shocked by the end. You made it sound as you presented that game like a sort of Agatha Christie thriller with the, the sting in the tail. I guess it's the, the case of the missing premiere because like a good Agatha Christie novel, it sucked the reader in for the first part, didn't it? You thought, ah, oh, yes, I've read this one before. I know what's going to happen here. It was almost de rigueur, even to the point where Richmond didn't quite put the foot on the throat in the second quarter, but certainly had the formula there to go on in the second half and do what they've done to the Cats and torment them. Dustin Martin was playing. We weren't suspicious at that point of a paucity of midfielders for the Tigers that now seem obvious. Everything was going to plan. Step up Jeremy Cameron. And you know what? That stepped up before halftime, Rowan, because it was in that second quarter that, for me anyhow, it became pretty obvious that Cameron was finding places to get the ball that not only didn't impinge on Hawkins or Rowan, 
but it almost encouraged Geelong to go more direct. That was the best, the most encouraging thing for the Cats at half time was that they weren't dwelling on the ball. Yeah, true. And I thought that the other significant thing that turned around was their pressure, which I thought, frankly, in the first 15, 20 minutes of the match was pretty lamentable. In fact, I, I tweeted as such, but boy, did they turn that around. Some really telling stats by the end of this game. One was the Cats winning the contested ball by 33. But also on the outside, the uncontested ball, they had 90 more uncontested possessions. And the other big one, and a testament to that forward potency, 20 marks inside 50. So um, they really gave the Tigers a lesson in their own sort of pressure game, really, and finished off. Uh, there's an argument even more efficiently than the Tigers have right through their goal nearer. Now, I just want a word of warning here. As you know, I'm a big believer in the Tigers. Um, I, I think you have to have a reduced performance if you're missing the general of that back line, Dylan Grimes. Their defence looked very disorganised. And a midfield trio of Trent Cotchin, Kane Lambert and Dion Prestia. You cannot be a lesser side if those guys are missing. First of all, well done for saying trio and not troika, your favourite word for a threesome. I, I want to talk about pressure. I agree. I think Dylan Grimes' absence, and this is of concern because we just have become so used to Richmond's backline being assured and cool in the crisis. Let's hope that it doesn't rely on one man because that makes it more vulnerable than we thought. But I want to talk about pressure. You're right. At the start of the game, four goals to one in the first quarter, it didn't look like Geelong were able to exert much pressure at all. Now, in the modern game, pressure creates turnovers, which is probably the surest way to goals. But isn't pressure for all 18 clubs a case of mind and attitude? And, and I want to know how they were able to change that mindset mid-game, given that they have not been able to summons it for the last five years, really, against Richmond, bar that one win in 2019. But this was an important game. How can you change that mindset mid-game? Well, I, I, yeah, no, it's a really good question. I think the mindset that definitely changed besides that was how they moved the footy. Now, we know they're generally a pretty cautious, deliberate sort of ball movement team. And that works. It works against basically everyone except Richmond. And it looked to me like they started the same way and thought, nah, this is going to happen again, stuff this. Let's just throw caution to the wind a bit. And they did it. And they became a much more effective team. So so is it possible, Rowan, that playing a more energised brand of football also makes you more likely when you're not in possession to get to the contest and create the pressure? Because that passive style of football, I think, is so static that when you turn the ball over, it's hard to get into gear to become manic. You know, you need to be manic with the ball as well as without it. I think that's a really a really good argument, actually, and I think that speaks to uh, intensity levels, doesn't it? Yeah. That if you're yeah. energised and motivated and, and get that shot of adrenaline almost from seeing that risk-taking pay off, it just sort of uh, fuels everything else you do in your game as well, almost a, an unconscious thing. Now, whatever it is, I think um, they should probably... Well, no, they shouldn't stick to it because what they do works well. I, look, they, they are a good change-up side. We said this last year, even when they were playing that slow, deliberate brand, 
they were capable of rattling on a burst of goals. We saw them take Brisbane apart one night with a burst of seven goals in 15 minutes in a third quarter up at the Gabba. So they can do it. It will be interesting now to see if they put that sort of mythology, mythology, methodology. Methodology, yep. yeah. Gee, it's early Sunday morning. You know um, what? Well, if anybody should be able to say an, olo- an ology, it should be footyology. That is true. Uh, it, it, it will be interesting to see how often they uh, ply that brand of footy now and whether they do that against other teams. But one thing it tells us definitively, Fonny, I am not worried about Richmond, but yeah, yeah. one thing it does say definitively is we should be worried if you're an opponent about Geelong because they are very, very capable. And, and just for people tuning in and saying, all right, Einstein's, if it was that easy to play high-octane football, why doesn't everybody do it? Well, you need the requisite skills, you need the body strength to do it, and you also need, I think, the endurance and seasoning because if you don't, you end up like North Melbourne, who do play a pretty high-energy game of football, but you, you, you have to be able to execute it throughout the game. It can fall apart very quickly. So Geelong if they can get that mix right of being able to catch their breath with possession football that keeps the ball away from the opponent and turn that tap on, they become like the swans at their best in the mid-2000s and even better with that troika up forward. Yeah, uh, you yes, you appropriated my word. Um, <laughs> uh, a really good win to the Cats and uh, unfortunately, finally, I've got to break it to you. They play your mob next week. So 7.50pm Friday night at Marvel Stadium. Can the Tigers bounce back? Well, they are at Marvel Stadium also on Saturday evening, 7.25pm against the Giants who are on a bit of a roll of wins mm. now and much improved form. So that one will be a good test of their capacity to respond from a pretty yep. noticeable setback on Friday evening. All right, uh, that was what kicked us off. Let's move to Saturday. Well, this was a tough one to tip and uh, the pundits and uh, punters pretty evenly split, I think. And uh, so it panned out as being hard to split because it was a close one. In the end, though, victory to your Saints, Finey, over Gold Coast at Metricon Stadium. The final score St Kilda 8-15-63. Nine-point victors over the Suns, 7-12-54. They trailed for most of the day, the Saints, but a big last quarter in which they kicked four goals whilst holding Gold Coast goalless. Got them over the line. The goal kickers for the Saints, two each to Billings and Steele. Singles to Crouch, Higgins, King and Ryder for Gold Coast. Three goals to the other King. Good to see the brothers up against each other. And singles to Corbett, Holman, Rankin and Weller. Not the greatest game of all time. Uh, Skills a little bit deficient. Bit of a slog, but uh, a really important win for your boys. Finally, you must be pretty happy with that. Well, you said it was hard to tip. It was hard to watch. I mean, games of football that are played in pouring rain with sleet are difficult to watch, aren't they? Uh, well, it wasn't. Oh, wasn't it? Surely it was. St <laughs> Kilda dropped more marks in that first half than I dropped in my VCE or HSC legal studies exam, having misread a question about common law. I mean, that I have never seen so many marks, chess marks, dropped in that first half 
It was, boy, talk about contagious. We are living in the times of pandemic, and I'd be te- I, that team needs to, get, needs to get inoculated on the way back home. I've never seen anything like it. So it was frustrating. And it wasn't until Gold Coast finally sort of grabbed the game by the scruff of the neck with some very good, positive, down-the-guts football, lowering their eyes in the second half of the third quarter, did we think we had a winner. At that point, Gold Coast sort of worked out, you know what, if we've got the ball 70 metres out, let's just chip it to a leading forward. And it paid off on two or three occasions. They headed into that last quarter, two and a half goals up. But I'll tell you something, Rowan. You know, you pointed out that in the last four meetings before this game, St Kilda had won all four by a margin aggregate of 11 points, 4-4-1-2, and two, correct? Yep. Now, people might think that's lucky, but I'll tell you that a football club that does that does have a sense of ownership over the other team. And as that last quarter sort of closed up and St Kilda got more of the ball, again, I felt that that team has a confidence of at this stage of their development, owning Gold Coast a bit. And so it played out. They controlled that last quarter really well. They did. They got great service out of, for most of the day, Steele, Billings and Clark. And I want to add Crouch, who kicked a very important goal in the last quarter. And through those players and the ageless Paddy Ryder, who was brilliant again, they were able to get the win. Gold Coast were nothing like the previous two weeks, though, Rowan. They lost their team unity, and Stuart Dew said as much in the post-match presser. Uh, disappointing for them, and, you know, coming off arguably one of their best handful of wins ever against Collingwood at the MCG the previous week, you really wanted to see them back it up. And this, on that score, is a particularly bad loss, I think. You mentioned Paddy Ryder. I reckon he and Rowan Marshall are almost the two greatest talismans for St Kilda because inevitably when either or both of them play well, the Saints are a pretty reasonable chance to get the points. Oh, come on, Rowan. Do you remember World Series cricket? Of course I do. Okay, before World Series cricket, who opened the bowling for Australia? Uh, Well, Dennis Lilly and Jeff Thompson. Correct. The greatest one-two pairing in Australian cricket history. When WSC came to pass and Thompson left in the second year, do you know who opened the bowling for Australia? Save uh, Rod Hogg in, in a series when Rod Hogg didn't play, when well, they went to the uh, West Indies. Uh, oh, uh, I'll tell you, I opened it. Wayne, Trevor Wayne Lachlan, Clark? <laughs> correct. Wayne Clark and Trevor Lachlan. Now, I'm not saying Hunter and McKernan are Clark and Lachlan, but I am. You know, I mean, you can't compare a guy who'd never played footy and McKernan, whose long and not storied career didn't include that much rucking, to Ryder and Marshall. It was always going to make a huge difference, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Well, a a quick sign-off on either of these sides' prospects because I find them both pretty hard to read. Uh, Do we think Gold Coast have matured after a result like that? I must say, I'm still very, very suspicious of exactly how much development they've made. All right. Look, it was a bad day for them because they looked so disjointed and so unteam like they started pointing fingers at each other the forward line only worked when they were able to get the ball out over the top which is you know when you've got guys sort of standing in the goal square good delivery okay that will work but when they were flying together for the ball in the forward line it was a mess and you know Corbett was great last week but he was not great this week and I'll say this about the Gold Coast 
They rely too much on the very hard running of Tuke Miller and Anderson in the middle, which means some other guys just don't work hard enough, Rowan. All right. Well, similar question about the Saints because, uh, you know, the ledger for me is still very disappointing in terms of what they achieved last year. So can they get enough confidence from grinding not overly impressive wins like that to return to the sort of football they were playing at stages last season? Because I've got to say, I've got my doubts about that as well. You know, their numbers to the contest on a very hot day were excellent. If they weren't butterfingered and... They're very nervous teams in Kilda. It's, it's as though they feel they should be performing much better and one or two errors early in the game compound around the ground. Like, here's the thing, and Brett Ratton said it, if you get behind or if you make a mistake, you can't fix it all up in one play. You know, get back to basics. I think St Kilda are trying to um, make amends for game errors by by doing spectacular things to make up for it. The one thing I'll say about St Kilda is this. There is scope for improvement amongst a number of players and if they get Membry and King to work with Ryder and or Marshall up forward, that's good. I'll tell you what's not working this year is Butler as a small forward with Higgins and another small forward. It's just not working. No, been been disappointing. All right, what have both clubs got in store next week? Well, we've already mentioned St Kilda coming up against Geelong on a high after that win over Richmond. Do you remember Geelong St Kilda last year at the Gabba? Uh, I don't, to be honest. Geelong, you know, that was the two weeks in a row where Geelong delivered those two huge wins. Yeah. They outplayed St Kilda embarrassingly so. St Kilda need to... They should be preparing now for this game mentally. All right. And the Suns have got a big Q clash coming up against their Queensland rival, Brisbane. That one is at Metricon Stadium, Saturday afternoon, 4.35 Eastern time. The second game on the card this Saturday, however, was in Sydney. GWS taking on Essendon and uh, it's hard to be a Bombers supporter at the moment. A third loss by under a kick this season. This one by two points following losses uh, to Hawthorne by one point, Sydney by three points. So reasonably frustrating. Uh, A really entertaining game though and a thrilling finish. Two-point victory to the Giants, 16-11, 107, defeating Essendon 16-9. 105. The goal oh, kickers... Robert, can I just jump in? Yeah. You, you just said a really thrilling, exciting finish. You are such a well-trained journalist. What's I that? couldn't hold my tongue the way that game ended for us. And I, I know we're going to discuss it, but, you know, props to you for being able to say it was an exciting finish and not absolutely losing it even today. Uh, I think I know what you're talking about. I try not to get sucked into talking about this decision or that, but... Uh, the goal kickers for the Bombers, three to Langford, two to Wright, two to McDonald, Tip and Woody, two to Jones, two to Snelling, singles to Hooker, Perkins, Cox, Redmond and Guelphie. And he was impressive as he uh, after coming on as medical substitute. For the Giants, three to Finlayson, two to Sproul, two to Bruin, two to Green, two to Kelly, singles to Himmelberg, Lloyd, Taranto and Hopper. Well, finally, let me start by saying I don't think on the balance of play Essendon really deserved to win, but Ooh. I've got to say with my Essendon hat on, I'm 
whilst I'm, you know, frustrated at narrow losses, I'm more enthused about Essendon's longer-term prospects now than I have been for years when the win-loss ledger has been a lot more positive because of the kids. They were great again, I thought. Not necessarily all in the best, but Cox gave plenty. Perkins gave plenty. Um, Harry Jones gave plenty. They all nailed big moments. Um, And I'm getting a lot of pleasure out of watching their continued development. So that was a big thing I took away. Uh, Giants, look, uh, they're in trouble. They got out of trouble. Um, Their winning ways continue. So they've just got to be happy to get the result. How do you see it? Well, first of all, those young blokes. Now, Harry Jones had not done much. He's two beautiful set shots of goal in the last quarter. They sort of embarrass Hawkins from last week against Sydney, don't they? He is a real prospect, Harry Jones, because it's hard for a kid like that to have the inner, inner sort of fortitude to be a player having not done much for three quarters. So yeah. that's a great sign. Yeah. All right. I want to talk about that decision to Hooker. Hooker was badly beaten all afternoon, probably his worst game for the season. Now, if you watch the end of that game, it's not just that decision. There were two other decisions, one for GWS, one for Essendon. If the AFL are going to insist on following this line that umpires do not put the whistle away at the end of close games and let it play out by themselves, they are perpetrating a lie that is, in the end, not fair and not the way football should be addressed. In fact, they need to talk to the umpires about umpiring the same, no matter what time the clock is. Because when a guy goes for a mark, wraps his hands around the ball and gets his arms chopped and his neck chopped, I think that's worth a free kick. Yeah, look, that was... I've got to say, when I saw it in real time, I didn't scream about it. You know, it didn't look like a mark to me. And then I thought, oh, well, the free, you know, some you get, some you don't. When I looked at it, slow-mo and stills and whatever... I probably do agree with you, but, you know, a bit of the luck of the draw. I've got to say, Fanny, I go back to Essendon, and this is Essendon's problem still. It, it's the skill level. They burn, they torch so many opportunities with poor disposal and poor decision-making. They had more than 60 inside yeah, yeah. 50s. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, like a turnover by Hines, was it in the third yeah, quarter? That... Well, yeah, he was, I mean, one of the, Kyle Langford, I like him, and there were two good goals in the last quarter, yep. but he... Yep. Turned yes. it over, going inside 50 about four times. Will Snelling gave away a golden opportunity just before three-quarter time, I think. Yeah, you know, yeah, but you, You're not going to win those close games if you make too many skill errors. True. Well, can, can I talk about one Essendon player? Yep. I was never much of a rap for Laverde. St Gilda went after him about three or four years ago. I wasn't yep. a rap for him because his body wasn't seemingly holding up, but his mind also wasn't great in as much that he tried to be a forward that was probably, he was thought he was taller, stronger and faster than he actually was. Yeah. Now, he is a batman of immense courage now and skill that when that game could have been lost in that last quarter on two or three occasions, his incredible courage kept you in the game. He is worthy of the highest praise, especially given his career up to date. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. He's been outstanding. In fact, almost the biggest plus out of this year. And kudos to Ben Rutten for making the move. You know, yeah, like, no, he's I, been great, Rutten. Yeah, I, well, I must admit, it's not a move I would have thought of. It's almost one born of desperation. 
But you're right. He has been absolutely outstanding and a lot of pluses there. Look, one of the, again, one of the frustrating things for me about Essendon is it's not the kids who are letting him down. It's some of the senior players in various ways. Now, Andy McGrath, I love him, but I think he's he's been a bit disappointing this year. I'm not sure he's working hard enough defensively. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's injured. He tortures the ball a bit. Zach Merritt, better disposal yesterday, but he's had some issues on, on that score as well. Tipper doesn't get nearly enough of the footy. He slips over, he fumbles. And again, and I know this guy's been a whipping boy for me in recent weeks, but Devin Smith, mate, yep. you've got to yeah, contribute yeah. something. He just showed yes. nothing when it mattered. So the senior guys have to stand up. And, and I tell you, I'm so pleased that there's a name not in that because for the first three or four weeks, Dyson Apple had no problem finding the ball, but it was soft ball, poorly used. He is now, he's such a courageous player, Dyson. Look, his body is not strong enough to play the position he used to play. He took a couple of intercept marks and he also set up that beautiful goal in the last quarter from a direct kick to him that required him to run back through the centre with the fly of the ball. And I can't remember who he hived it off to, but it was sort of a set play. But he has week on week shown his great courage and definitely worth a spot in that turn. Well, one of the few coast-to-coast goals, I remember the Bombers kicking, uh, great pass out in front of uh, Mac Guelphy. Um, I did mention Guelphy off the top. Uh, I, I've always found Guelphy a little bit neither here nor there, but that was, uh, uh, despite the fact he came on late, he had more impact on that game than any other yep. game I remember him playing. So he's and- certainly booked his spot for next week. And again, Ben Rutten showing faith and having that faith returned by putting a player forward of centre that is not normally there and that another coach could easily have said, look, go in the back line, give us run, and we might throw Heppel forward or somebody else forward. So Ben Rutten's been bloody good. All right, final quick word on the Giants. Well, you know, when you what were they up 35 points early? Uh, 30, 30 plus. 30, yeah. 30 plus early. Given their recent run of good form, I would have thought that they could run away with it. They're an ill-disciplined team at sides at times. That what Finlayson did deserves many weeks, not because it had the long-term effect, but because it was an old-fashioned piece of thuggery. But interestingly, it was him that sort of won them the game. You know what? They still, to me, don't have the quite the mental mind. They don't have the mindset to be a, a finals team. What do you reckon? Yeah, I, I think they're still a bit dodgy. Uh, you know, very bottom reaches of the eight at best for me. Uh, but, we'll, but by the same token, that's more than I was expecting for them. Yeah. Okay. Who, who have either side got next week? Well, the Giants have got Richmond, so pretty tough one. That Richmond on the rebound, 7.25 Saturday evening. The Bombers play Fremantle at home, 1.10pm at Marvel Stadium. So that will be very interesting. Freo, of course, have had their issues on the road. Essendon. Certainly a game they'd be looking to win, you'd think. All right, they were the two Saturday afternoon games. Let's talk about Saturday Twilight. Well, was this going to be a battle for the wooden spoon? Two sides, both in position 17 and 18 on the ladder. And we were all talking about what civil war would erupt at Collingwood if they were to lose this one. Well, they didn't lose. How good a win was it? Well, we'll talk about it. Uh, Collingwood, 18-point victors over the still winless North Melbourne. The Magpies, 14-10, 94, defeating North Melbourne, 11-10, 
76. The goals, well, one man ruled the roost here. Very timely return to form by Jordan Degoe, who kicked six. Very impressive up near the goal face. As too was big man Darcy Cameron, who finished with three. Two to Pendlebury, two to Majek, and a single to Hoskin Elian, uh, Elian, Elliot. For the Roos, two to Stevenson, two to Thomas, two to Marnie, two to Zerha. Singles to Campbell, Lazaro and Turner. Well, finally, Collingwood got the win, so they kept the Wolves at bay for the time being. Uh, I wasn't overly impressed with them, though, to be uh, perfectly honest. Were you? No. Look, this game, what, 17th versus 18th, and I guess they played out like that. There's a lot of raw players on both teams. For the, obvi- for the you know, what, what's the expression? Something obvious? What's the person's name you've used before, obvious? Captain. Yeah, correct. That's right. For Captain Obvious in the football media, which is just about all of them now, the narrative out of this game is Dugowie strikes form in match winning performance. You know what my headline out of this game was? What? Selfish Dugowie proves for once and for all who he cares about most, himself. Look, he kicked six goals, and I know he's got ability. He, he, he was the most blinkered player. He went out there to show the world how good Jordan Dugowie was. And I don't think I don't think I personally wouldn't like to be playing alongside of him. At one point, he got the ball and snapped it for a point with Dacos running past him. And you could just see after he kicked it how exasperated Dacos was. And by the way, I want to talk about this new midfielder, Dacos, in the role he now plays. He plays out of the middle or the wing, but he is so often the player to Pendlebury-like sort of squirm out of trouble when there's a pack of players. They handball to him and he's a great Great at extricating himself. Great future. How about Pendlebury's goal, by the way, Rowan? Turned the clock back, didn't he, with a bit of the matrix? Yeah. Well, I want to talk, too, about the other veteran midfielder because Steel Sidebottom played his 250th, had his moments. Um, I couldn't help thinking. He gave a great post-game interview. He's such a humble, nice, uncomplicated guy. And it took me back. I actually interviewed him out on the ground after the under-18 grand final in which he kicked his 10 goals back in 2008. And I always remember, I mean, I have done the odd interview over the years, but I always remember that one because I remember afterwards thinking, gee, what a nice guy. You know, he's just kicked 10 goals in the grand final. He Mm -hmm. hasn't got tickets on himself. Uh, That helped him get drafted where he did. Um, And he's just the, the same bloke, minus a head full of hair, obviously, but just one of the most popular universally liked guys in the AFL. So congratulations, Steele. Bit of a divergence. North Melbourne, I like the way they're hanging in there. They've been, you know, their effort by and large this year has been pretty consistent. So, you know, it's hard not to despair when you're winless after eight games, but they know what they're doing. And I think they are showing signs of progress here. Sure, they've got to tighten up, uh, you know, their, their game style. They've got to tighten up on the discipline front. They didn't get a lot of help from the, men in luminous green on a couple couple of scores, and I will talk about that later. But, you know, for a side that's clearly rebuilding, hasn't won a game, um, they're one of the better-performed 0-8 sides I've seen, put it that way. I think there's plenty of promise there for the future. Yeah, if I was writing a report card, like my teachers used to write the report card, it would be the exact opposite of what they used to say about me, because for me it was, Mark has a great deal of ability, but seems to be unable to concentrate in class and put in the effort. 
Whereas North Melbourne are putting in enormous effort, but don't seem to have the ability. They'll have to stay down this year. They are one forward away from winning three or four games. Unfortunately, their forwards are hopeless. I'm sorry. that Larky is so far off the mindset to be a forward because he doesn't get the ball a lot. And often when he does, he either plays on or, or just, he just steps into trouble. He doesn't have the composure to say, you know what? I'll be the spearhead. All that effort up the field, I'm going to honour with some shots of gold. He sort of left that to Tom Campbell a bit. I, I, I really think that that's where they are falling down because their effort through the midfield and their back line is, is commendable. Karen Thomas, I think, is starting to show some Better. pretty good signs. I thought, yep. uh, you know, when they had that surge at the start of a third quarter, he was a big part of that, as was Ben Cunnington. I mean, it, he made it obvious just how important he is to the way they go about stuff. Some of their other pickups, uh, the other guy I thought was pretty okay yesterday was Connor Menadieu. So, yeah, you know, they've he's had a, a better kick than I remembered. Oh, yeah, no, he's, he, oh, I, I seem to remember him at Richmond, his skills being pretty reasonable. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, look, they're, they're a bit of a piecemeal side, aren't they? They've got the veterans, they've got the, you know, uh, journeymen, I guess, from other clubs, they've got, you know, a handful of talented kids. It's going to, you know, it's a long term project, but, you know, you can't, I think, by and large, this season, you can't fault them for effort. So where are the pies at? Are the pies just just on end? north, very quickly, yeah. we should mention Mackay. He's really come on in leaps and bounds. Yeah. And it's going to be great. I can never remember a pair of twins playing on each other year in, year out. But they're actually going to be arch rivals for many years. That's going to be great. I can remember a pair of brothers playing on each other. Yeah. Who? Well, the Maddens. Was the oh, yeah, yeah, I'm saying, but, you know, but aren't they like the Kings? They're identical, aren't they? Uh, I don't know officially, but they do look pretty similar. I yeah. think it's it's fair to say. Yeah, uh, all right, what have both these clubs got in store? Uh, interesting one for the Pies. They have got Sydney, and uh, they've had some great clashes with the Swans over the years. Uh, that is at 1.45pm next Saturday afternoon at the SCG. So that'll be an interesting clash. And the Roos... Uh, just quickly, Rowan, yeah. for me, most interesting, a bit self-indulgent, because about 28 years ago, I took my wife-to-be, Natalie, to a game of football. St Kilda was playing at Waverley. And apparently my form barracking has put Natalie off for 28 years. But she's going to Sydney next week to see the musical Hamilton with my daughter who barracks for Sydney. Oh, yeah. And Andy has bought them two tickets for the footy next week. <laughs> well, could be. Uh, uh, things have better water. Things have changed a bit since she last went. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I wouldn't get away with what I was saying, so it should be right. Uh, and the other game, uh, the other, sorry, combatant in this game, what have they got? North Melbourne has a trip down to Tassie. Well, at least they're on familiar turf in terms of the state. Not at their home, however. It's at the other Tasmanian home, which is of Hawthorne. That one at 2.10pm in Launceston on Saturday afternoon. All right, that was Saturday Twilight. Two games on Saturday evening. The Battle of the Capital Cities, Melbourne v Sydney at the MCG. Difficult conditions, pretty wet, pretty greasy, but an enthralling contest nonetheless and another pretty close game. In the finish, Melbourne retaining its undefeated record. The Demons now 8-zip, their best start to a season since 1965, which is sort of ironic because that same season arguably was a season which broke the club. 
for the uh, subsequent 30 to 40 years. The final scores, the Demons, 12, 14, 86, uh, 22 point victors over the Swans, nine goals, 10, 64. The goal kickers, four goals to Tom McDonald, a really critical contribution by him. Three to Brown, singles to Melksham, Petrarca and Spargo. And for the Swans, just the one multiple goal kicker, Will Haywood with two. Singles to McInerney, Hickey, Lloyd, Papley, Sinclair, Mills. Interesting game, Finey. It went this way and that. The Demons certainly on top by half time. Sydney really showing something in the third quarter. And then uh, the Swans charging at the start of the last quarter as well. But Melbourne answering the challenge. And uh, I think uh, if nothing else, well, not if nothing else, but one thing we can definitively say about the Demons after the last couple of weeks they are not only a good side to watch on the outside, they are pretty darn tough on the inside as well. And psychologically, I think this is perhaps the most important thing, uh, a far more resilient side than we've been used to previous Melbourne combinations. So really impressive stuff again by the Demons. Were you impressed? They were super. Sydney threw everything at them and some, and they withstood. Their backline set up, was maintained. Tomlinson out for the year with injury, but for the actual makeup of the back line to work, they needed that third tall, and Harrison Petty did the job well, allowing Lever and May their normal attacking defensive roles as intercept marks and set-up generals. So that worked really well. That was the first port of calls, I think, to look at them long-term. Max Gorn took on Hickey and Sinclair brilliantly. He's, he's playing like a true captain now, lifting towards the end of close games. And I, I, I'm always interested because you needed to watch this game carefully. And there's a lot of football and we sometimes worry that some of our football pundits with responsibilities in the main dailies and on TV just look at stats and highlights and work their best out from there. Because I can tell you, Clayton Oliver was brilliant, but the next player at the coalface, who I believe really was pivotal to the win for Melbourne, is not as easy to find because it's not a name that rolls off the tongue because he hasn't been in for three weeks. But Harms was fantastic. There was a lot of greasy, loose, wet ball last night as it rained throughout the evening. He surely handled his endurance, power and ability just to muscle it forward was decisive. Well, finally, just quickly, I think they've found another one as well in James Jordan. He's really Yes, impressive. he's good. Yeah, he's good. But not he's one of their outside players, him and Rivers, and that's good because they have to get some outside ball. You know, I am an agnostic. I believe, and I hope I don't offend people, I believe the Bible was a well-written account of stories of the day, sort of like days of our lives. So I don't really believe in it. But I do believe in the footy gods. And the footy gods last night, you know what they said? Bailey Fritz should not have been allowed to play because he played his worst game for years. Somebody had to stand up in his absence. Did many people think Tom McDonald was going to be that man? You know, say huge credit to Tom McDonald as the footy gods laid waste to Bailey Fritz. And yeah, I know that's a bit tongue-in-cheek, but he was no good Fritz. And McDonald stepped up. And that's great because you need to be able to step up when others don't. 
Well, let's talk about the Swans because we know yes. they had that flying start to the season, certainly come back to the field, but uh, they're still impressing me overall. And yeah. I, you know, we, we've seen that the kids aren't sort of the eye-catching material they were in those first few weeks, but gee, they get consistent buy-in from their uh, more seasoned players. You know, Luke Parker and, and Dane Rampey, terrific. Yeah, Cunningham. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's an unsung hero. Callum Mills's move to the midfield, I think, has been terrific. Jake Lloyd's another one. You know, he's been a really good player for a long time yeah. now, but yeah. doesn't really get the kudos. Um, and my boy, Robottom, I thought he was pretty good too. And your boy, Tom Hickey, I thought they were both good again for the Swans. So they are but a you know who wasn't good? Who? You see, oh, but it's Buddy. But it didn't work out, did it? You know, no. I mean, Buddy tried. He tried his ass off, but he just mm. got bested. It, it was great to see that Buddy didn't drop his head, still tried to do team things and personal things, but they didn't pay off. Well, it was great to see that he was, you know, in, in scoreboard terms, a non-contributor, and they still nearly won the game. So yeah. uh, we've never questioned their pluck. You know, but, um, you know, they've certainly got more strings to their bow these days. And I think the future for them is really bright. So, you know, whilst they've lost this one, might have been lucky to win last week's one. Yeah, yeah. In yeah. some ways, you know, could have won this one. But uh, I think their future is pretty bright. You know who's very lucky last night was a game of football, not cricket? Who's that? Callum Sinclair dropped a catch in front of the old Bay 13 that would have had him on their hit list for the next decade. There would have been songs about him. He would never have been able to field a third man or finally again that mark he dropped in the third quarter. And I thought, that's in front of the old Bay 13, mate. You're very lucky it's not there anymore. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, next week, the Swans are back at home on the SCG with that game against Collingwood, 1.45 Saturday afternoon. And the Demons, they are on Sunday. And uh, it's the Ron Barassi game. They're up against right. Carlton at the MCG, 3.20pm. So uh, a big test of the Blues up against the AFL's only remaining undefeated side. So well done, Demons. Certainly been a fantastic first yes. third of the season. All right. That was one Sunday game. Uh, sorry, that was one Saturday evening game. The other one, well, I'm not going to do the a cappella version of Showdown by the Johnnies again. Um, but that's what we had on the agenda. Let's talk about what happened. Showdown number 49, and they were tied at 24 each. Well, Port Adelaide has hit the front in the head-to-head -head battle of the two AFL combatants of the City of Churches with, in the end, a pretty convincing 49-point win over the Crows. The final scores, 12 goals, 15-87, defeating Adelaide 5-8-38. The goal kickers, three goals to Marshall, two each to Dixon and Georgiati. Singles to Rosie, Drew, Willem who? Willem two or we Willem or Willem Drew. Jeez, he's drunk, he drew that one out. Um, singles to Fantasia and Farrell besides. You know, I didn't even mean that. Um, <laughs> and for the Crows, two to Thilthorpe. I always think Caroline Wilson saying that name. Oh, yeah, it's great, it Thilthorpe. I mean, after Thilthorpe, don't you want to have a Farrell? <laughs> yeah. And singles to Fogarty, Rowe and Sloan. Uh, well, pretty dour stuff early on. Uh, Adelaide, only one goal to half time. And the funny thing was, 
they were still in this game up to their next finding. I thought they certainly tried really hard and it was only in the latter stages of this game where Port really had a decisive advantage. So uh, disappointing for the Crows. They have really hit the skids after a bright start to the season. But you couldn't get on their back for lack of effort. I thought they tried particularly hard in this one. Well, let's start with up to their necks because Ned McHenry is lucky to still have his connecting his sort of uh, brain to the rest of his body, which means was, Scott Wise set can yeah, have a few weeks off. That was bad. That was really bad. In it was like Scott, of... like Scott, I know it's a showdown, but um, show some, it's actually not even about being competitive. Show some duty of care to your fellow sports person because what you did is dangerous. Mm. So it works off for that bloke and he played very well. This game was fascinating, I think, because for most of the night, the scoreboard showed that there wasn't that much interest in the game. But we don't probably understand here in Melbourne. Yes, we have rivalries, but we are traditionally a town with Geelong of 12 teams and then other numbers where where games never held the singular importance of a showdown or a derby. Mm. So this game was played with some malice and intensity, regardless of what the score was all evening. And the only reason Adelaide, I think, were bested is because they have much lighter bodies at this stage than Port Adelaide. This was a real arm wrestle. And in terms of the arm wrestle, even though in the end there was a clear winner, it was still one of those all night through. Now, to that end, you've got to admire the way Adelaide go about their business and think that it's only a matter of time before those bodies mature, some of them, and they become really a better team for it. They, you know what? They have guys, we've talked about Lockie Scholl being good. I don't think his body's ever really going to be big enough for it. But a Thilthorpe is going to be a mighty good forward when he puts something on that frame. Fogarty's got the frame, doesn't quite have the engine. I think that that forward line with Josh Walker, with, with Josh Walker, yeah, Josh Walker played better than Tex. With, with Walker coming back to the field a bit, that forward line is going to look different in coming years. But I reckon it's going to be pretty good, bro. Mm. As a Port Adelaide, well, you know what you have when your body's mature. You have you have big men like Dixon and Ollie Wines and Boke to get you through against teams like that every time. They're a serious team. He let themselves down last week, but showed I think they're going to be there when the whips are cracking. Yeah, I think they are as well. And you've got to keep in the back of your mind too that uh, some of the personnel they've got potentially to come back into it. Uh, number one, Xavier Dersmer and Zach Butters. And two yes. Real injections of excitement there. They're going to look different in the ruck too because there's no doubt why Seth's going to get, I reckon, a minimum of probably three. Um, I think they'll take a fairly dim view. Importantly, yep. though, got a good uh, ready-made replacement in Peter Laddams. He's a bit of a forgotten man, isn't he? Yes, yes, uh, yeah, yeah. Laddams will step up. You know, we've said it all year, but why did Sydney not see the Alua Alua in Alia Alia? He's an absolute gun. He is. He's a gun. He's been outstanding all season. Clearly the recruit of the season from yep. another club. Um, and we've talked about it a lot. He added a dimension of strength and height to that port defence, which was perhaps one of the few queries on them. So they are beautifully placed, the power, no doubt about that, for a serious tilt at higher honours in 2021. 
And next week for their trouble, Port Adelaide, well, it's another big clash. In fact, this is going to be a great game. I'm really looking forward to it. Port Adelaide taking on the Western Bulldogs at Adelaide Oval on Saturday evening, 7.40 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And the Crows, well, gee, uh, tough showdown will take a toll. Well, it doesn't get any easier for them because they've got to hit the road and head to Perth to take on West Coast on their own Optus Stadium. And uh, given how well Fremantle went with that assignment last week, <laughs> even playing at home, it doesn't augur well for Adelaide. So pretty tough times again, unfortunately, for the Crows. Well, that was... Just, just one last word, Rowan, on a player from either team. Yes. You know, Duday's undersized. He's got so much courage and ability. Yeah, that good, boy good is... Player. And I know that you've been pointing out this guy's strengths throughout the year. And I had a close look at him. See, Carl Amon's an improved footballer. Not the yeah. amount of touches he gets, the length of time he keeps his head over the ball and really makes those sure hands work by the courageous act of, of at speed running up and picking balls. Vastly improved. It's been a slow burn for Carl, but uh, I think he's become a bit of a poster boy for the value of development because they've showed great patience with him and it's paid off. He is a really important member of their best 22. Aim on uh, to that. Oh, very good. That's very good. Uh, oh, you're in fine punning Pathetic. form today. Well, keep it up because that was Friday and Saturday dealt with. Three games on Sunday to talk about. And so we came to Mother's Day, which is always a date which presents its share of uh, challenges for sides worried about being able to attract a decent crowd when everyone, of course, is off paying homage to their mothers. And um, some good fodder for that argument, certainly in the first game on the card, which was 1.10pm at the MCG. It was Hawthorne and West Coast. Things didn't get off to a good start. With the turnout, just 15,277 at the G to see the Hawks, who admittedly aren't travelling very well. And presumably a few expat West Australians there to see the Eagles. And the players seem to respond in kind early on. Not one of the great opening quarters we'll see in 2021. It produced a grand total of zero goals. Five behinds to the Eagles at the first change just three behinds to the Hawks. What happened thereafter? Well, West Coast turned it on indeed with a power-packed seven-goal second quarter. That gave them uh, the best part of a five-goal lead, and that was a lead they maintained thereafter. In the end, West Coast running out victors by 38 points, 14-14-98, defeating Hawthorne, eight goals, 12-60. The goal-kickers... For the Eagles, some different names in there today. Four goals to Archie. Very impressive performance from the young man. Two goals to Darling. Two goals to Jack Petricelli, Fidey. What did you notice about him? I noticed that he almost embarrassed himself into, into the annals of history. I know he's very quick, but he was almost very embarrassed with one of those goals. How about, did you see that? I did yeah. see that. He, he kicked the ball it. off the pack and he decided to look at the goal umpire and it just touched his boot. He hit it about three times with that boot. Oh, um, but why was he looking? I'll tell you what I noticed most about him, though. He's quick. Jeez, he's quick. 
and singles to Kelly, Jones, Kennedy, Wangdon, Williams and Waterman. For the Hawks, two goals to Warple, two to Lewis. Um, I should say two to Mitchell, his other half. No, we've done that joke enough. Two to Hanrahan, singles to Impey and Howe. Pretty predictable outcome, this one, Fanny, but seven goals second quarter. Um, the Eagles uh, turned around their recent poor form on the road. Pretty impressive performance from them today, I thought. What do you think? Well, those people who sacrificed lunch with mum for the Hawthorne West Coast game must be diehards because you couldn't have expected much as a Hawthorne supporter and you got probably a little bit less. I think, I think those who chose the busy yum cha restaurants enjoyed that crush far more than the open spaces in the stands at the MCG. Really, the game was over at half time. That first quarter, decent conditions, no goals. It wasn't Mother's Day. It was Mother's... It was more Mother's... Well, I won't use the next word, day. It was terrible. Both teams profligate in front of goal. But you knew that West Coast were the ones that were wasting opportunities that they eventually would set straight. Probably the biggest thing out of the game is that injury-riddled West Coast got a great return from Brendan Archie with four majors. That's another, not just depth player, but player that seemingly can stand in and become a real menace. Just on Archie, Fanny, I was thinking as his name came up, he's been in the system a while. How long do you reckon? Well, seven years. Correct. How many games do you think? 30. Uh, no, more than that, 53. How old do you think he is? 30. No, not 30, but not. he's not much younger. He's been 26. Uh, well, close. He's, near, he's 27 and a half, in fact. So, been yep. around a long time and done it hard. Started with Port, of course, but he was great today. He's got considerable amount of skill. Um, and uh, some real smarts around goals, obviously. So, anyway, uh, again, underlining, they're not short of depth, the Eagles. No, and it's a player that would not just be making up numbers in any game, given the danger factor there. Hawthorne, look, Gunston came out before the game, but he, I thought he was rushed back last week against St Kilda, so that's an understandable loss. The problem with Hawthorne is that there are some balls slaughterers in that team. I think the efforts there generally for the Hawks has well, been most of the year, but that's, that's if you turn it over, I mean, you know, you've got the stats on those things, Rowan. I, I'm, I'm a firm believer that Hawthorne have to almost go back to where it all started with Clarko and start to rebuild the skill base because that's, of course, what he centred his magnificent premiership reign on was highly skilled users. Yeah, no, true. Uh, they, I'll tell you one thing that's starting to worry me about the Hawks. I thought for the first month of the season, absolutely competitive. They won the first game with a great comeback. They lost their next three, albeit all by margins under five goals against decent opposition, and they were competitive in all of them. But for the last month, if you break it down, they were pretty good for three quarters against Melbourne, but really turned it up in the last quarter, ended up losing by 50 points. They got over the line, squeezed over the line against Adelaide in a game on their home deck in Launceston, a game they were also down by five goals. They'd been smashed by St Kilda by 69 points. And this effort today, it never really looked like they were a chance to win after that second quarter. So there's an unhawthorne like quality about the way they have lost over the last uh, three or four weeks, which worries me. Yeah. 
these things also, as we've seen with teams that very much mathematically and spiritually can't make the finals, they can fall off the face, the edge of the, the edge of the football world, can't they? When young players come in and quite frankly, the older players, especially at a club that has enjoyed triple premiership success, sort of think, you know what? I've been at the top of the mountain. I don't like the view from down here in the valley. Things can get very, very messy for the last half of the year. Yep, and uh, absolutely. And I think Alistair Clarkson certainly has his challenges in that regard, just getting him back playing some competitive footy again. What have they got next week, the Hawks? They have got North Melbourne down in Tassie again, Battle of the Tasmanian Cohabitants. This one in Launceston, 2.10pm on Saturday afternoon. As for the Eagles, well, they will start a shorter-priced favourite in any game this year I can think of, given the respective form of these two sides at the moment. Last game of the round, 4.40pm Eastern time on Sunday afternoon, taking on a woefully out-of-form Adelaide. So you'd expect them to make short work of the Crows there. So despite a long injury list, Things starting to look pretty good for the Eagles. That was the first game on the Sunday card. The second game was a few kilometres across the CBD in fair Melbourne town at Marvel Stadium. 3.20pm Sunday afternoon brought together the Western Bulldogs uh, trying to bounce back from their first defeat of the season last week against Richmond. Up against Carlton fresh off a uh, morale-boosting win over old enemy Essendon last week, a game in which the Blues played some pretty attractive and pretty effective football. And they have a okay record against the Doggies at this venue. So reasonable cause for some genuine hope. Cause that for the bulk of this game, finally, looked very justified because quite late in the third quarter, the Blues had worked their way up to a lead of 27 points. It was looking like a big upset was on the cards. And the response, emphatic from the Western Bulldogs, who ended up winning this game by 16 points. The final scores, Western Bulldogs, 16-11, 107, defeating Carlton, 13-13-91. The goal kickers, Josh Bruce, He had a day on. He can be up and down, old Josh, but this was a good day. Five goals to the, uh, I was going to say ponytailed one, but the, what do you call it? The little sort of samurai warrior uh, topped one. Five goals to him, two goals to Norton, two to Hunter, two to Scott, singles to Bontempelli, Johannesson, Sweet and Trelaw for the Blues. Five goals to Eddie Betts, turning the clock back was Eddie. Four goals to Harry Mackay. He's having a great season. Two to Owies after three last week. That's five in two weeks for the young man. Singles to Cunningham and Cripps. Well, the Blues made most of the running finally, but that was a power-packed answer by the Doggies. They kicked eight unanswered goals from the end of the third quarter up to near the end of the game. It really was a flexing of their muscles. They'd been getting beaten for contested ball. They turned that around. I think by the time they hit the front, they had an advantage of something like 23 contested possessions in the final term alone. It was a really impressive answer from the Doggies. 
And the Blues, well, they'd be disappointed because they did all the hard work, couldn't finish it off. Is that how you saw today's events? Reminded me of the old tug of war and world of sport, Rowan. In the end, the bigger, more powerful, favoured team with some genuine heave work in the last quarter and the closing stages of the third quarter made the point and won the tug. The players that lifted Bontempelli powerful through the hips was McRae. He knew that every time that centre clearance was to be won, yeah, they could get first hands on the ball, but now they had to focus on getting it to somebody. And that was done with that sort of heaving hard work. Hunter Good, Trelaw got his head must for the first time in the season with some good inside work. Caleb Daniel lifted for the outside polish and up forward. Bruce and Norton injected themselves into the game. This was, they needed to flex that muscle. This was potentially a bit of skid row for the Bulldogs, losing to the Tigers, okay. Losing to the Blues, not so okay, given their lofty position as equal favourite for the Premiership a week or so ago. Now, Carlton, on the other hand, also reverted to type, unfortunately for them. And that was a little bit of a deer in the headlight when the four points was there to be won. I understand, Rowan, it's not as easy to get separation on the forward line later in the game. The game does tire a bit. And they were not able to get the centre clearances, which takes advantage, especially at Marvel of the 666, or create the turnovers. Because I tell you, one-on-one, Harry Mackay might be the best player in the competition. He was irresistible in that third, early part of the third quarter and the second quarter. And so is Eddie Betts getting separation from his opponent without a crowd. That was lost as the game wore on. You know what, Rowan? Landscapes are hard to change in football, like real landscapes that take millennia or millions of years. It's very slow, incremental change. And for Carlton, it was a bit of more of the same. You know what, that in a way, makes Geelong's win, which was a landscape changer against the Tigers, even more meritorious. I sort of thought that as I saw Carlton and then the Dockers struggle to shake their perennial tags. Interesting game of footy. I'll tell you, the really good point you made there, I think, was about the Bulldogs' physical strength. Now, I've uh, banged on a bit this year about my issues with Carlton's skill level. The discrepancy I noticed today most, and it happened as the doggies overpowered them, was that physical discrepancy. Watson Pelly took a mark near goal. And, there's yeah, there's a lot of talk about, gee, he's a big body. But for some reason, when he took that grab and kicked the goal, I just thought, geez, he is a seriously big man. He could play as a key forward. He's a midfielder. You look at a guy like Jack McRae, you know, he doesn't ooze muscle, but he's strong. He's flinty. He has a strong core. And that, all that's that... right, right, the core. Did you see him bust through, like like almost like wading or marching through treacle in the middle a couple of times with that core? Yeah, well, this is a point I was going to make. I think even Trelaw's a bit like that. So strong bodies, and you look at it in comparison to some of the Carlton guys, with the obvious exception of Patrick Cripps, and you can see that discrepancy. And I think that proved a pretty important difference between the, these two teams the longer the game went. So, yeah. Rowan, just on Cripps, I think he was that. I think he's a 
a wounded, he's not a wounded warrior. He's a, a, a sort of almost a, a defeated, physically a defeated general. So much of the load as he had to carry. And now, almost two years into this downturn in his form, because it started halfway through 2019, really, all of last year. Now, this year, now in the last half, he got less than 10 possessions, row, And in that last quarter, when that tug of war, the big heave was on, he spent time on the bench. And I just, I, I think he now might be an overvalued commodity in football. Sadly, I think because he carried too much of that load during futile years where Carlton had no one to support him. Yeah, no, it's an interesting uh, discussion and I'm sure we'll continue to have it if he doesn't get a bit of a wriggle on. So the Blues now stuck in 13th spot at three and five, got their challenges to make some progress this year and next week, uh, well, they have their share of challenges as well. Coming up against the AFL's only undefeated side, that game is on Sunday afternoon at the MCG at 3.20. The Bulldogs, meanwhile, in one of the games of the year, no doubt, really look forward to this one. Saturday night in Adelaide against Port Adelaide. Great test for the Doggies and a good win today for them, which left one game to complete round eight. And that game, originally scheduled for Perth, was now being played in Brisbane. Well, tough break for Fremantle. They were supposed to be playing at home. Of course, COVID, nasty situation and flare-up in Perth meant this game had to be rescheduled. They will get it back, of course, later in the season, but not what they were looking for. Uh, it was going to be tough, and so it transpired. Never in front at any stage. Uh, kept plugging away to a, a reasonable degree, uh, kicking goals late. But I don't think the margin in the end was reflective of the gap between these two teams. A 24-point win to Brisbane. 14 goals, 11-95, defeating the Dockers 10-11-71. The goal kickers for Brisbane, three to Cameron, two to Danaher, singles to the following catalogue of players. Archie, Hipwood, Lyons, Matheson, McCarthy, McLuggage, McInerney, McStay, how's that? And okay, that's a that's a body list if I've ever heard it. <laughs> oh, sorry, I've just read out the team sheet for Partick Thistle. Um, that is how many individual goal kickers? Eleven individual goal kickers. So that's pretty impressive. Not so impressive the Dockers' goal kicking list. Two to Sarong, two to Taberner, singles to Darcy, Fife, Henry, Lobb, Mundy, and. Walters, uh, Brisbane got the jump finey, five goals to two in the first quarter, maintained that gap thereafter, actually got out to a 47-point lead early in that last quarter. Uh, Freeman took, then took the foot off the gas. Frio got a few cheapies at the end. The Dockers had more inside 50s in this game, but finey, I've got to say this, it's easy to beat up on the Dockers away from home. But it's a continued issue since they topped the ladder in 2015. This is how many seasons since then? 16, 17, 18, 19, sixth season since then. Over that period, they have now played 53 games on the road. They've won just 12 of them. I think there's a, a continued static sort of uninspiring nature about the way they play footy, which for me was reflected in one statistic today, 
bounces, running bounces. And the figures, 11 to Brisbane, 1 to Fremantle. They don't excite me, and I thought this was a classic Fremantle away game where you knew they weren't going to win after about 15 minutes. Am I being too harsh? In one way, no, because the stats back it up, and they, as we have commented on before, seem to luxuriate in the fame and adulation of life at home and don't really pay the price for making it count for naught when they go away. Look, it's like in tennis. It's all well and good to break your opponent's serve, but they say it's only really a break if you hold your own. And they don't seem to make much of their wins by doubling up on the road. That being said, I do feel for them because this was supposed to be a home game. And just to put into geographical perspective how far or how, you know, what that meant for them on their travels, how about this one? If they were playing out of Strasbourg in France as a home game and expecting to play there, they would have had to fly over France, the rest of France, Andorra, Monaco, Switzerland, Italy, Austria, Slovenia, Hungary, Romania, Moldova, and the capital of Ukraine, Kiev, before landing in the far east of that former Soviet bloc country. Did you look that up or did you just do that off the top of your head? I did it off the top of my head and there's a good chance I've left out about three or four countries. And your point being... Pardon? Your point being... That that's a huge trip that they had to undertake. And I reckon the way the game played out, they had a lot of the ball through the middle. They were desperate. They never chucked the towel in. But the finishing that Cameron has hit form, Walters hasn't. They get a return out of the combination of Hipwood and Danaher, whereas the combination of Lobb and Tabernet is far less successful. And I'm not just talking on the scoreboard, I'm talking about the way the game played out. I just think at home, in front of a crowd, which again, that was never going to happen. They haven't had a crowd there for a while. That is exactly the sort of margin that turns around. In other words, if I said to you, Brisbane Frio, you'd say where the game's been played. And even if you had been on a desert island with Connor Blakely for the last 10 years, doesn't he look like he's been filming Castaway too? But if you'd been away from the game, you'd say, I don't need to know the form. I'll tip Brisbane in Brisbane by four goals. I'll tip Frio in Frio by four goals. Well, that's what that's I mean. It. Yeah, well, that's what I mean about being predictable. Yes, well, yeah, it is predictable. But this prediction shouldn't, you know, only happen in unusual times. That being said, they do have issues. One issue that they've got is they don't get enough midfield goals because they've actually got a midfielder who could be a brilliant forward. But Nat Fife, who has always had his goal kicking bubbling under the surface, we all saw it in their only grand final against the Hawks, but his record has generally been uh, sort of... uh, what it have goals to behinds ratio a little bit better than 50% each season. Do you know what it is this year, Rowan? I don't. He has kicked two goals 15. Wow. That's so He's good. now got the yips. He mm. had a compare of shots at goal in that third quarter. He missed one from 15 out, but he didn't look like he wanted to take the putt. It's now costing them scoreboard. And games. 
Because if he could go forward and kick the two or three shots that he has each week, then that's a very different setup for them. On the other hand, Brisbane, they were without you know, important players, Berry and Neil. That makes the midfield thin. But I like Matheson's game. He was strong. He's not super quick. Mitch Robinson has lifted his rating as the year has progressed. I thought he played a great game. But their strength is a very organised, comfortable backline that rota- that does rely a lot on Andrews, but also Gardner's very steady back there, and also and also they've got a bit of um, they've, got, they've got a bit of razzle dazzle that can break open a game in a short period of time, don't they? They've got some pretty smart forwards that can really turn it on in a short period. Okay, you've summed it up pretty effectively. I don't need to add too much, though. Uh, quick question. Uh, will Fremantle make the final eight? It gets harder. Uh, you know, that COVID-shifted game could almost cost them. I think they're a sniff, but they need to They need to either find another forward or take five to a hypnotherapist. Okay. I'm going to answer my own question a lot more briefly with one word. No. And a quick final one on Brisbane. Are they in as good a position as last year? One word answer. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But we but we need Neil back in, in good order. I'm saying no. I don't think they're as cohesive. I don't think they flow as well as they have over the past two seasons. But still... The crushing of Port Adelaide doesn't, mm. doesn't sort of stand out for you as a real turning point? Well, not as one of eight games they've played, no. But having said that, they're fifth on the ladder at 5-3. Plenty of chance to turn that round over the the subsequent weeks. Of course, they've got a Q uh, cash. Well, it will be cash, but Q clash (laughs) looming against Gold Coast at Metricon Stadium Saturday afternoon 4-35. As for the Dockers, well, they've got another road trip. It's to Melbourne. It's to play Essendon. 1.10pm Sunday. I don't think the Dons are going to win too many games this year, Fanny, but I reckon that'll be one they look at and think we are a serious chance here. So another big test for Frio on the road. If they do, if the Dons do get those four points, I'll be able to give you a one-word answer on the Frio, the Fremantle finals prospects for the rest of the year. It'll be the same as yours. Okay, all right, fair enough. And a big test for us coming up because it's that segment where we go off our crew it and we've got to rise to the challenge and we will. On Footyology, the rant off. Well, often this segment is quite comical, but I've gone serious today, Finey. So um, annoyed am I by having been witness to this particular incident yesterday. I think you know where I'm going. Will you count me in, please? And I'm pretty sure it's not hooker-related, so that means you are serious if it's another team. Three, two, one, and give it your best, mate. I'm pissed off with the laws of the game, Finey. I'm pissed off with the blokes who make them, and I'm pissed off with some of the blokes who interpret them. That's a fairly broad brush, I know. But ours is a game with more scope for interpretation of the rules than just about any other you can think of. So you need to make sure that the directives are as clear as they can be. And you need to make sure that the people issuing them and the people policing them are at least on the same page, which you had to start wondering about given the shock departure from the AFL last week of umpire's boss, Hayden Kennedy. Why have I brought this up? Well, all off the back of one specific decision yesterday in the North Melbourne-Collingwood match. 
If umpire Dean Mugg gets decision to penalise North's Cameron Zerhar for showing insufficient intent to keep the ball in play isn't the worst free kick paid in the modern era of the game, I will eat my luminous green shirt if I had one. I hate talking about umpiring in specific decisions, but this one can't be allowed to pass unremarked upon for a few reasons. The wording of the rule is ridiculously vague, for starters. It comes under the section out of bounds. But all Rule 18.10b says is that a free kick will be awarded against a player who, quote, kicks handballs or forces the ball over the boundary line and does not demonstrate sufficient intent to keep the football in play, unquote. Now, that used to be known as deliberate out of bounds. That obviously has changed dramatically as the interpretation has tightened. But, quote, not demonstrating sufficient intent to keep the football in play, unquote, plunges the whole thing into murky grey. We're far from just deciding whether a player's deliberately forced the ball out. The umpire's now required to effectively read the mind of a player. Let's say a player hugs the boundary line with a kick. He may desire, first and foremost, to seek territorial advantage, but has a safety valve if his team doesn't look like taking possession should the ball go out of play. Is that insufficient intent? Maybe, maybe not. The percentages of each purpose could be dramatically different in different cases. How does an umpire read a player's mind to that degree and the extent of those percentages? At least until yesterday, though, a player could know that while he might be penalised for a skill error, which I think is wrong, that would only occur if he was trying to move the ball further afield. It couldn't possibly happen when he was, say, shooting for goal. Well... Incredibly, now it has. What's worse is that umpire Dean Marquettes didn't just pay the free kick in an instantaneous reaction. He had several seconds to think about it as Zerhar's kick slewed off the side of his boot and bobbled over the boundary line away from the goals for which he was very obviously aiming. All I can wrap my head around is the crazy idea Marquettes penalised Zerhar for insufficient intent because had he actually scored, it would have forced a stoppage for either another centre bounce or a kick in from a behind. What was he thinking? Well, that's part of the problem. So many new rules and interpretations have been forced upon umpires over the last 10 to 20 years, they have God knows how much more to think about than they once did. In fact, I'd be buggered if I could think of umpires or referees in any other sport across the globe that have to remember as many rules and interpretations as AFL umpires do. It's not fair on them. And the big danger is it ends up clouding their judgment on more basic and regularly paid infringements. And we see more howlers as a result. I suspect the umpires are starting to get pretty pissed off by that and quite possibly those umpires' coaches as well, hence Hayden Kennedy. What do we do about it? Well, we could rewrite the rules to take out as many of those grey areas as possible. Some of those interpretations could be actually written into the rules so as thorny an area as deliberate out of bounds at least has some clarity in its wording. I actually wouldn't mind if they went to a last touch out of bounds free kick scenario. It'd be simpler. It'd make umpires like Dean Margetts less obvious targets to ridicule. And after Saturday's farcical free kick, it's effectively what we now have anyway. Rowan, I mean, this was really a terrible decision. Now, you know, and, and as, as a former member of the Society of the Despised, an umpire, I am loath to point the finger at a, an individual umpire because Dean has been an umpire for well over a decade 
and he's you know, he's devoted a great deal of his life to brilliantly umpire, you know, officiating Australian rules football. He's outstanding in the scheme of things. But are you familiar with the, a fugue, what a fugue state is? Uh, no. It's a hotly debated psychological or mental disorder. Some people believe it exists, others don't, where without trauma, a person can wake up and completely forget their previous life and just walk out the front door, not knowing that they'd been married or worked or whatever, and start a new life. And it's as though Dean Margetts had never seen the game of Australian rules before. Everybody knows, I mean, it, by the way, Zerhar's got a touch of the degoes about him, that he was having a shot at goal. It was so stupid, you can only guess that the guy had, had something wrong with him. I feel for Dean, because he's better than that. So I just want to say that. Well, it underlines my point, though, because we that need clarity. 100%. But should we change the rules for terrible umpiring? <laughs> well, we, we just need more clarity, not more confusion. That's what I think we're getting. Fair All right. right. Uh, are you ready to rant? Because I'm oh, ready. Yes, I am, mate. Okay. Three, two, one. Rant. Okay. I am gilding, sort of bending the rules here a bit, but footyology now needs to cover another football because I'm not just passionate about the Saints, but I have also had a lifelong love for the West Ham club of England in English football. Of course, I talk of soccer. And last night, even though the Hammers weren't playing, was a very important night for my club. You see, in 126 years, we've never won a title and probably can't given how football is structured. But incredibly this year, in a once-in-a-generation, now I'll actually say once-in-a-lifetime of a tortoise opportunity to make the top four, which is also full of merit and gets you a place in the European Champions League with all the riches. Last night, I stayed up till three in the morning to watch Chelsea travel to Manchester City, knowing that Chelsea had to lose. I watched it too. Now, this is what happened as West Ham's fate was held in the hands of these two mega clubs. Manchester City, in the 44th minute, against play, went one goal ahead. Good news. But even better news, a minute later, they were awarded a penalty. Stand up Sergio Aguero. Yes, the same man who in his first year for Manchester City kicked maybe the game's most famous goal, securing a win and a title, a win over QPR in the last minute, and a title stolen from their cross-city rivals, Manchester United. Now he's in his last year, and fate dealt him a hand because a win for Manchester City secured them the title to stand up and kick the penalty to put the nail in the coffin of Chelsea just before half-time. And he chooses the Panenka. Now, for the uninitiated, a Panenka is a mode of taking a penalty named after Antonio Panenka, the check from the 1976 UEFA, UEFA titles. It requires a player to deftly lob the ball straight down the middle, hoping that the goalkeeper jumps left or right, anticipating a normal penalty. It is in equal parts arrogant, disrespectful and idiotic because its aim is not only to score, but to humiliate a goalkeeper flailing at something that doesn't exist. But the humiliation is turned if the Panenka fails. And have a guess what happened? It failed, Rowan. You or I could have saved this friggin' Panenka, not in our sporting pomp 30 years ago. Today, we could have saved it. And not in our sporting clothes. We could have saved it wearing a three-piece suit or a birthday suit 
or a onesie koala outfit holding in one hand a bucket collecting money for the WWF. Footy gods don't like hubris. So guess what happened in the second half? Chelsea equalised. Still not the end for the Hammers, Rowan. Not the end. And then in the 92nd minute of a game that was only 93 minutes long, they scored the winner. So with it goes, little West Ham's chance of making the top four. Probably Leicester's loss gives us a tiny lifeline. But no, Manchester City will still win the title. These two teams meet in Istanbul later this month for the European Championship final. And Roman, Roman Abramovich, with his $25 billion and his plaything Chelsea, take on Sheikh Mansell's Manchester City. And West Ham can wait another 126 years for glory. The final word on this is, interestingly, what Aguero wears on the back of his shirt. His name is Sergio Aguero, but his nickname is Kun Aguero, K-U-N Aguero. And I've got a feeling that whoever printed his shirt left a friggin' letter off. <laughs> yeah, very good. I very, am so angry with that bloke. A different football rant. I'll go, well, I got up and watched it with David, my son, who's oh, a mad please. Chelsea supporter. I could not believe it. It was one of the most startling things I've ever oh, seen. And, dick. and you're right. And if the who if, if the uh if there is a god, I guess what would happen now is Manchester City would lose every game. Manchester yeah, United they... would win every game and they'd blow the title. Aguero right. win them a title and then lose them. It was have oh. a check. Check it out on the highlights if you haven't seen it. Oh, it was mate. incredible. No, I you're right. You. It was amazing. Uh, so we're both sleep deprived. We've, we've established that because it was a so angry start and uh, neither of us have slept enough. No, good rant. Oh. Good rant. And uh, I'm glad you didn't take that gag at the end, the full hog. Uh, yeah. uh, although it's pretty clear what you meant. Yeah, just on that, do you know Kun Aguero is named after an Argentinian, Kun is after an Argentinian cartoon character whose real name is Kum Kum, K-U-M, K-U-M. Oh, yeah. I don't know what's going on in Argentina. Oh, I don't know why they don't make them have their proper names on their shirts. I mean, he's not the only one. There's several that, that have. Uh, what, what's that about? Anyway. It'd be great. You, you'd be Roco, just Roco if you were Brazilian. What about, in, uh, very quickly, what about how in the... Um, terraces or the seats at yeah, yeah. Uh, uh what's the ground emirates stadium yeah, yeah yeah the the banners that they put up over the seats and said we're not really here like what yeah, i'm just supposed to be talking up like it's as good as we're here with the yeah, yeah. crowd noise yeah. it was no nah, we're not here i don't know it's there's something weird going on at manchester city anyway we do you remember the old main the, road i do Much i do better. remember yeah okay all right, we finish off on a different type of football rant, but a very good one. Well done, <clears throat> Finey. All right, that is round eight wrapped up suitably. Really interesting weekend of football yet again. You'll be able to uh, hear us again in our round nine preview edition recorded next Wednesday morning. So stand by for that. Always appreciative of your support. You can support us at the supporter page at ACAST, wherever you're listening to this podcast or jump on footyology.com.au. Some great stuff on there at the moment. And um, we have several links to Patreon, an independent publishing platform for seven Australian dollars per month. You can become an official Footyology patron. And also finding a quick shout out to our sponsors, if you will. Okay, the best burgers in Australia. Oh, I love Andrews Burgers, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. And don't forget, beautiful Renault's at 
West Bond Properties. And if you are listening to this program post Mother's Day, you may well be to all the mums out there. You are the real, you, I know how this household runs. You are the real hero. So happy Mother's Day, either listening tonight, still Mum's Day, or maybe yesterday or the day before. Yeah, here, here. Uh, happy Mother's Day to all the mums out there. Also, thanks to Stats Insider, our other official partner, the best sports data analyst in the caper. Thanks to your company. Hope your team had a good win. If they didn't, better luck next week. We'll catch you later.